Hey, if you uh, have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and open it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning as we walk through uh, the book of Acts together for a really long time. All right, we're going to be studying this book for a while. But if you have a a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. While you're turning to Acts chapter 3, let me remind you of our Connect cards. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. And a couple things about that card. We love it when you fill it out. Uh, We love knowing when people are here. One of the approaches that we take to ministry is... Uh, We want to make sure that you are taken care of, and so part of that is knowing that you are here uh, with us. In addition, you can put a prayer request on that card, and if you add your prayer request to that card, on Saturday mornings, our elders gather together. We did just yesterday, and we pray over every prayer request that comes in, and so uh, you can put a prayer request on that card uh, as well. We'd appreciate it. Now, uh, you notice, if you've been coming to New Hope, that we got rid of this middle aisle, and some out of habit. It's kind of fun people watching in the back when everybody who has a habit comes in and they and oh, there's no middle aisle, and then you kind of get frustrated. And uh, just so you know, uh, that's because uh, God's been blessing the church and we need more space. So we added some more chairs. Uh, ben and James uh, worked together to do that. So if you got mad when you came in, there's that. Uh, enjoy that. <laughs> but also, um, uh, if you are frustrated with it, it was Ben and James. And so it's uh, Ben at newhopecc.net. Uh, James at newhopecc.net. You guys are very welcome for that. So uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we will jump into Acts chapter 3 this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, just for blessing us, allowing us to be here. We thank you for um, the ability to open your word and to learn, to give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Hey, have you ever been around somebody or uh, talked to somebody or uh, listened to a certain word they say or a phrase that they use or there's a mannerism uh, and you're around that consistently and uh, as you spend more time and you kind of notice this, it kind of dawns on you as you listen to the words they say or if you, uh, if you watch the actions that they have, it hits you like, I know where they learned that. Like, I know where that came from, right? You might say, I know that was passed down from their parents. So my wife was telling me this past week for her, uh, she caught herself standing with her hands on her hip. And she's like, I've always noticed my mom and my grandma doing it, and then I started doing it. And her mom's like, you've been doing it a lot longer than you think. Uh, (laughs) uh, I asked our ministry staff the same thing. I said that same question, and their response was uh, fun. Ben jumped in. I'm really not picking on him today, I promise. But he jumped in, and right away he said, uh, yes, every single year it gets worse. Every year I hear myself talking like or catch myself acting more like my dad. (laughs) Maybe for you, it's uh, you spent time on a team or uh, in a choir or a, a band at school, and you spent time under the teaching or the direction of somebody who was uh, consistently making you do the same things over and over again. And so, man, you're just having to repeat it. You're going over and over and over again, and you're like, man, this is kind of getting like, why are we doing this so much? And then you get to the game. You're on the court or on the field or you're performing in that choir or that band, and it hits you during that performance. This is why. Like, we, we did the same things over and over again, so when it came time for this, that's what we would do. And that teaching from that teacher or that, uh, that uh, coach or whoever it was really rubbed off on you. Maybe you've heard the phrase, more is caught than taught. Now, for parents, it's a pretty scary thing, but it's true, right? Over the course of their experience in our homes, our children will catch more from being exposed to us every day than they will what we say to them in teaching them. More is caught uh, than taught. And so as your kids are growing, you have a desire for them 
uh, to catch certain things. And so you want to model certain things with your life. And so for my boys, I'm like, I want them to know to open a door for a lady or anyone behind them that's coming into a building. Make sure you hold that, that door for them. I think about spiritual disciplines with all my kids. I want to make sure my kids have these spiritual disciplines and they're focused on these things. And the question, though, is like, if they don't ever see us doing those things, how are they going to catch that? When it comes to those spiritual disciplines, I mean, if they never see us with our Bible, but we just tell them we read it. If they never see us uh, praying and they never hear our prayers, how are they going to catch on to that kind of thing? Or driving. I think about that all the time. Like, uh, I want to make sure that my kids have good driving habits. And so when you're in the car, you're thinking about it. Or maybe you're not thinking about it. And uh, you're like, I don't want my kids to drive the way that I drive, right? Three weeks ago, uh, Friday's my day off. And um, I, was, I had my youngest, my three-year-old Noah, with me in the van. And we were driving. And uh, my wife was off running errands and doing something else. And I'm driving. And this car kind of cuts me off. Nothing real bad. But they kind of cut in in front of me. And... I was slightly frustrated. I said, come on, man. I just kind of said it like that. And as soon as I finished the phrase, my three-year-old in the back goes, come on, man. (laughs) And I thought, ah, no, like don't catch on to that, right? Today, the text we're going to study, it becomes pretty evident, if if you'll follow with me, that because of the exposure to the everyday life of Jesus, the mannerisms, the approach, the decision making of the disciples is radically different because of that. They spent so much time around him that it rubbed off and influenced their life in a pretty profound way. You remember Acts chapter 2, a, pretty, a, a big movement started with the church. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel for the first time. 3,000 people are baptized into Christ, and the church is kind of born in that moment. And uh, you remember we said, hey, God did not uh, create a mission for his church. He created a church for his mission. He had this mission all along. And, and now he has a church to carry out that mission. And we get to see, for the first uh, period of time, those 3,000 people stayed put, and they devoted themselves to certain things, being discipled and prepared to go back to their hometowns. Now in chapter 3, the shift takes place where you kind of, instead of being up at this level looking at the forest of the early church, you're coming down and hanging out among the trees, and you get to see everyday life in, in the early church. And that's going to begin in chapter 3 with a unique encounter that Peter and John have as they're walking into the temple for prayer. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here's the words that Luke, Dr. Luke, recorded for us about the early church. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Over in chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that this man would have been uh, over 40 years old. So it's a pretty fascinating encounter that he has here. Every day he's brought, and every day for 40 years, he's brought to the front of the temple to beg uh, in order to make a living. So he's asking for help all the time, 40 plus years of begging. 40 plus years, according uh, to the Bible, he would not have been allowed into the temple to participate in what was going on. So 40 years of not being able to go in where everybody else was going. 40 years, I would say, of his dignity being stripped day by day until this day when he shows up and Peter is there. Now, notice that when he sees them heading in, 
He notices Peter and John coming, but when they talk to him, they have to tell him to look up at him, meaning he would have looked down. He wouldn't have looked up at them. When they got close, he would have looked away, not making eye contact. There's something about the loss of dignity that makes it hard to look people in the eye. And he had he'd lost that. And so he just would have held up some sort of a cup or a bowl or something to ask for some help, and he would have been looking away, not making eye contact with them. And Peter does something that kind of startles this man. He stops and he says, look at me in the eyes. Like before we go anywhere, before we do anything, look at me. See, Peter's going to start and he's, he's learned something and he's going to teach us by his own actions that we start with restoring the dignity of people. And this is what he does. Now, my question though is this, what is it that would make this guy listen to Peter? Why look up? I mean, for however many years, just think about the span of that. There are many of you I'm looking at that aren't even 40 yet. And so to just think about this. Like his whole life, he's been overlooked. His whole life, he's been rejected. And somebody says, look at me. Why would he look up? What is it about Peter that was so welcoming? I mean, Peter's the guy that ran off at the mouth. He's the guy that cut people's ears off. He's the guy that was constantly being told, calm down, Peter. Get behind me. You're acting like Satan. Like all these things, like, like Peter is not calm. He's not uh, gentle. And yet something's happened to Peter. Think about it from Peter's perspective. Why is it you stop at this guy? There's all kinds of uh, paralyzed people all around Jerusalem at this time. Why this guy at this time in this moment? And when he's asking for help, why won't you just say, John, put some money in there? John, go get a fish, pull a coin out and throw it in his mouth. Remember when Jesus did that? Let's do that. It's easier. Why didn't he do that? What is it that made Peter stop and pay attention? You got to remember Luke is writing all of this down. Uh, we've said this throughout the series. It's important to remember. Luke is doing a journalistic research project. So he's interviewing witnesses, and he's gathering uh, the details from different events, and he's writing them down in an orderly way for his friend Theophilus. And as he's doing the research for this particular day, describing, interviewing people, what took place, and he begins to write down, okay, Peter and John are going in. This is the time that they were going in. This is what happened. I think it dawned on him as he, as he put this research together how Peter was interacting with this lame man Oh, I know where he learned that. I know why Peter's doing that. See, back in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, Jesus has a pretty unique encounter as well. Uh, Luke tells us, as he did the research uh, for the life of Jesus, he tells us in chapter 5 that he's teaching in a house, and the house is so full, I mean, it's bursting at the seams. There's no room to move around. You can't do anything. And there's this group of people that have a friend who's, who's paralyzed. And they want to bring that friend to Jesus. And so they uh, approach and they see that the house is so full that there's no way you're getting in there. There's no way that you're possibly going to get uh, this person through the doors. And so they say, we got to get him to Jesus. And so they go and they climb up on the roof. Don't let that detail be lost on you. And they get their paralyzed friend all the way up on the roof. They rip through the roof. They have a hole in the roof and they begin to lower him down to Jesus. And it's fascinating there in verse, chapter 5, verse 20. It says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw them. Think about your instincts. I'm frustrated. Like, are, you, are you kidding me? You're tearing through the roof? Like, why are you doing this? Like, are you serious? A lot of people would have waited for the guy to come down. They would have berated him. They would have uh, yelled at him. They would have had somebody remove him, get him, and then go get his buddies and get them out of here. I'm trying to teach you. I was about to say something. Everybody would have remembered, and then he had to come down from the roof. This is ridiculous. Why did he do this? No one would have batted an eye. No one would have cared. Like, yeah, get him out of there. We're trying to listen to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 20 says he saw them. He saw them, and he listened to them. 
And just by recognizing them and pausing his teaching and bringing the attention of everybody around him to these guys, he's restoring their dignity. He's saying, it's okay what you're doing. And then he kneels down and he says something loud enough for everybody in the house to hear. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, this gets the religious leaders pretty upset. They don't like that part. They're like, wait a second. Who is this guy who thinks he has the power to forgive sins? Who is this guy who thinks he has the right to forgive sins? He is not allowed to do that. And so Jesus responds. He says, what do you think is better, forgiving his sins or healing him? But to show you that I do have the power to forgive sins, to show you that I am powerful enough to forgive his sins, I'm going to heal him as well. And he heals him, and the guy gets up and walks. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 3. Peter stops. He's got a group of friends who bring their paralyzed friend to this gate every day because they want this friend to be able to be taken care of. And Peter and John stop, and Peter recognizes the need to look at this guy in the eyes. See, for Jesus, restoring dignity was about not berating this guy, not pointing him out, not singling him out, not mistreating him. For Peter, it was about, hey, look me in my eyes. So for Jesus, here's the point. It's Jesus and Peter, and therefore we. We start by giving people dignity, looking them in the eyes, treating them as though they were created in the image of God, no matter what's going on. See, that's what they did. And so for you, maybe it's actually treating somebody as though they are created in God's image and not mistreating them. Maybe for you, it's allowing someone to come and live in your home as uncomfortable and and difficult as that would be because they haven't had a good bed to sleep on and a good meal put in front of them. Maybe for you, it's forgiving somebody who's done wrong by you because you haven't been able to forgive them forever, but you know this person's just been carrying the guilt and the shame of what they did to you for so many years, and to offer that forgiveness is to restore in them a dignity that you've been harboring and holding on to. The point is, Jesus modeled it, And because of the time that was spent with Jesus, it rubbed off on Peter. And the same thing's true for us. We start there, but that's not where it stops. It's not just about treating people nice. It's not just about trying to restore dignity. Peter didn't stop there. Look at verse 6. Luke tells us this. And then Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. A couple things stand out here to me that I find incredible. One is, uh, this guy has no clue when Peter says, look at me, what's about to happen to him. I love that. I love that he has no idea just how much this is going to help him. He has no uh, possible concept that in just a moment, you're going to be walking for the first time in your entire life. For the first time in your entire life. Notice that it also says right there in verse 8, it says he walked into the temple with them for the first time. Always being excluded, always being left out. And now he has no clue that's about to happen, but What I love about Peter is Peter is extremely strategic. He's not just going to meet this guy's very practical, real need and leave it there. He is setting himself up to be able to point to his need for a deeper healing. He's pointing to, yeah, I can meet this need of yours. I can do this for us. It might be I can pay that power bill for you. I can help you financially. I can help you do these things. I can watch your kids. I can do all these different things for you. But do you understand why I'm doing it? There's something deeper going on here. And Peter was strategically setting himself up to be able to say, you need Jesus. Let me tell you about why you need Jesus. You see, the, the sermon that takes place after the healing and the healing itself, they're interwoven. They work together to magnify Jesus. It points to Jesus. 
So what I want to do here just for a few moments is uh, I want to talk about like the purpose of these miracles because it really brings out why Peter did what he did. But I think, and using this paradigm that I got from another preacher uh, and and teacher and writer uh, who was talking about miracles, and he used this paradigm, and I think the paradigm fits on any miracle in the Bible. But it helps us to understand how miracles worked and why they worked and what they were setting up for. So I think if you're someone who takes notes, this is your cue. I think you'll appreciate this. And here's why I think it's important. As we walk through Acts for the next uh, long time, uh, and as we're studying this together, you're going to take this paradigm anytime we see a miracle take place and be able to say, okay, these are the four things I need to remember about these miracles. And so uh, to give us a visual, uh, here's the, the first thing. These miracles uh, pointed in different directions. The first is they pointed up. Everybody point up for me. Yeah, some of you, I don't participate in these things. You don't tell me. Okay, that's fine. It authenticated, uh, it pointed up. So what it did is these miracles, they authenticate that what is taking place is from God. Particularly this miracle, it's authenticating that the message I'm about to tell you about Jesus, he really is God. And so he's using the miracle to validate the truth that Jesus really did come from God. Look at what he says in verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, it says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. He goes on to say there that it, it is his name, the name of Jesus, that has made this man strong. I mean, he healed him in the name of Jesus. You're going to read that phrase over and over again in the book of Acts. In his name, in his name. And what he's saying is what's taking place right now is pointing to the fact that Jesus really is from God. Now, here's why that gets hard for us. Because we confuse the word miracle. We use it kind of just haphazardly around in our culture. Miracle this and miracle that. Miracles in the Bible were specific, and particularly miraculous events. They served a a certain purpose in highlighting who God was. We just say anything scientific, anything cool, that's just a miracle. But it's important for us to distinguish the difference between science and miracles. And I want to do that just for a moment, okay? I want to talk about the difference between science and miracles. The first thing is this. About 40 years ago, it was common practice in academics to kind of say any, anybody serious about academics would never attribute uh, a miracle to a historical or scientific event. For the most part, I actually agree with that, right? Many of us were guilty of it, though. If anything is awesome, it's a miracle. And, and, and yet science tells us something different, all right? I tell my students this all the time. I have a worldview class that I teach, and I tell them all the time, science and, and faith are friends, and God has gifted us with science to study and understand the world that he created. Okay? It's a really important thing. Let me, let me give you this example. A century ago, as we were just beginning to understand the basics of chemistry and thermo, thermodynamics, many people okay, uh, were confused as to where the sun got its power. Right? It's like, where does the sun actually get its power? And so many people would say, well, the sun gets its power from God. Case closed. Don't even need to talk about it. Right? And that's just not, that's just not true. As we began to develop and understand the gift of science, we've come to understand that the the sun does get its power from nuclear fusion. So we've come to understand that, and that's a beautiful thing. That's not flying in the face of our faith. That's actually contributing to it. Because God has said, I'm giving you this incredible world. Go explore it and learn about it. And then he gives us the gift of our understanding, our intellect, our academics, to study it and come to know it. It's, it's a really fascinating, important thing. So to shove God in anywhere that there is a gap in knowledge is bad scientific uh, approach. It's bad science. It doesn't work. That attitude is going to keep us from learning what God has to say to us. Think about it like this. It's kind of like a magician. If you want to find out a magician's trick, I tell my kids this uh, often, you want to find out a magician, start from the premise that it's not magic. <laughs> it's not magic. Get that off the table, and you can figure this out. There's always a reason for what a magician does. 
Science is the same way. Having said that, there are specific events. There are specific things that took place in history that if anybody is serious about trying to understand them and study them and come to a conclusion, the only conclusion you can come to with these special events is this is divine. No amount of studying is going to help us figure this out. God has done something unique and special in this moment. The events that took place in the life of Jesus and in the book of Acts, these are those miracles. That God intervened, and it wasn't something that he was saying, go and study and figure this out. He was doing something so special, it was miraculous, and the only reason for it, the only answer we can come up for it, is God did something here. That's what we're seeing right here. This miracle points up, and it says, this is not something that you can explain away. This is something God is doing in this moment, and it's important for us to understand that because it points to him being God. So it also validated the the apostles. It gives them validation that, hey, what we're doing is of God as well. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this. You'll see it in the NIV on the screen. I'm going to read it in the NIV. You see it in the ESV. It says, Our great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to those who heard. God also bared witness, meaning he was showing himself to be true, by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is filled with these incredible things that point up saying, this is God. Think about it this way. Let me just simplify it this way. It's kind of like God is saying through miracles, this is me. Like, I'm doing this. Pay attention to me. It's kind of like a divine signature that can't be forged. It's like this event took place and God signed it and you can't fake the signature. You can't figure anything out. The only explanation is it has an author and God did this. So these miracles point up. They also point forward. Everybody point forward. You get the point at me. And I get to look at your faces, some of you. Elmer, yeah, some of you are just coming at me with it. But these miracles, they also point forward. Verse 21, Peter says that the healing is a sign of the things that are coming. Okay? So back in the Old Testament, any Jewish person that would have seen this uh, crippled person healed, any Jewish person, and remember where they are, where where are they at when this is taking place at the temple? they would have immediately made a connection. This is the fulfilling of prophecy in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah, verse, chapter 35, verse 6 says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. They would have seen this. Like, oh, wow. The Messiah was supposed to be the one that came and did these kind of things. This, this is incredible. What Peter's doing here is pointing to the fact that the Messiah must have come. Isaiah explained that God would send a Messiah to heal the world in chapter 53, verse 5, when he would say, by his wounds, we are all healed. There's coming a day that the Messiah will come and suffer for you so that you can be healed. And this is the content of Peter's sermon that he gets up to preach. Look, throughout all of the pain and the suffering in the world, God is telling us that I have a plan to reverse it. And he has said, I'm coming for this. So these miracles point forward. There's a text that I go to often because I need a reminder in the darkest days of my soul when I'm having a a difficult season or a difficult time and the the weight of everything is just kind of bearing down on me. There's a passage I go to, and I've read it to you guys so many times, and I'm going to read it to you so many other times because it's it's telling me that there's hope, that one day God is coming back, that Jesus came the first time to save my soul. He's coming back again to restore everything else, and it's going to all be made better. It's found in Revelation chapter 21. Here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every 
tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. The former things are gone. They've passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what the future holds for those who are in Christ. There is coming a day that no matter how much we have to deal with things like cancer that is destroying people that we love or our very own bodies or we have to say goodbye to people way too soon and we have to stand over the grave of people that should not be gone. We have to walk through frustration and failure and difficulty and tragedy and heartache. We have to walk through all of these things in this life and we hold on to this hope that our God has said that the things that he did pointed forward to a day that he's coming back and he's going to undo all that pain. It tells us that God hates suffering and pain as much as we do and he's got a plan to undo it all. And so does this mean, does this mean that people who now follow Jesus will, no, will, will all be healed and no longer suffer? No. Absolutely not. I mean, you look, look at what Peter does. Peter heals one particular paralyzed person. There were all kinds of paralyzed people in Jerusalem that day. And he used this one, one person because it was a sign. This was a sign that pointed to something that was coming later on. This was not just a display of power where he walks around zapping people and you get this and you get this. And it wasn't, it wasn't like that. There was something uh, that was, it was pointing to something deeper. It was pointing forward, saying, hey, hey this same God right now who's going to heal this person, if he can heal his body, how much more can he heal your souls? And there's coming a day where he's going to not only heal your souls, but he's going to heal your bodies as well. There's coming a day where he will undo everything bad. It wasn't just a power display. I mean, you think about it. If Jesus just wanted to show off his, his power or his ability to do things, why not fly? Just really think about it like a Marvel character, just fly around and like land every once in a while and do something cool. No one's questioning what's going on at that point. That's all he was doing. It wasn't pointing anything. Or like literally lift up the temple, like just pick it up and like, ah, look what I can do. Like he didn't do that. I mean, if he just wanted to display his power, he could have helped the Colts beat the Dolphins this year. You're welcome. <laughs> he didn't do things like that. He didn't do things like that. Because this was pointing to something greater. It was pointing ahead to something. Every miracle that Jesus and the apostles do in the Bible, you can read the, the Gospels and through the book of Acts. Every one of them is about relieving pain and suffering. And it's showing, it's showing that, just, that God is just as unhappy with the state of the world as we are. And he's got a plan to fix it all. The other thing they do is they don't point just forward, they point inward. So now you've got to point at yourselves. Right? So it points inward. So they point up and they validate that this is from God. They point forward and say, God has a plan that's coming. He's going to restore all things. It points inward and says, this miracle is being done to show that we have a deeper inner problem. It's not just the problem being solved in that moment. There's something deeper going on, and it's pointing to the need for something greater. Remember in Luke 5 when Jesus healed that paralyzed man? Remember the order of events? Think about this. Luke is very specific. The man is lowered down in front of him. He kneels down and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I want you to picture this is not first century uh, Jerusalem, but now instead this is going to be 2020, 2020. And uh, you're, you, somebody gets brought into Jesus who's paralyzed, and Jesus is standing there. He says, son, your, your sins are forgiven. What do they say? I think they respond something like this. Well, uh, Jesus, thank you, I think. Yeah? yeah? Jesus, there seems to be something that everyone else here sees that you're missing. Right? We can get to the church and the spiritual stuff later, all that forgiveness. That's fine, but like, I have a real need. I've got a very real need in front of me right now, and apparently you can't see that I have this need and I have to walk. 
I have to be able to walk. So like, that's the real need. So can we get to that? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not your real need. That's not your deeper need. See, when Jesus says, son, your your sins are forgiven. And when Peter starts out and he says, uh, I don't have money to give you, but what I do have, I give you. What, what they're saying is, hey, the, the thing that you really need, it's not, it's not the healing. It's something deeper than that. You need your relationship with God to be restored. You need your sins to be forgiven. Now, I'm going to heal you in addition to that, but the bigger need, the bigger thing that you have is that your sins absolutely need to be forgiven. Look, as bad as suffering and tragedy and pain are in this world, And as much as God has told us he wants to undo all of it, they are not our biggest problem. Suffering and evil is not the biggest problem we face. Our biggest issue is that we are crippled by our sin. It is destroying us. And the things that God has done in moving around us is to show us our need for grace, our need for spiritual restoration. The last thing that it does, it it points up, it points forward, it points in, and now it points down. Now you can point down now. Now, some of you, I don't know if you're doing it. I just trust that you're participating here, all right? It points down. This one's brief but extremely important. You ever notice when you study uh, the New Testament, every time a miracle is performed, it always puts the person doing the miracle at risk. It always puts them at risk. It makes them vulnerable to suffering, like every time, right? And so Peter and John, they're about to be arrested because they did this. Like, this is why they get arrested. But think about in the life of Jesus, too. In John chapter 11, Jesus is going to his friend's hometown. The town's called Bethany, and it's his best friend, Lazarus, Lazarus who's been dead for days. And Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he waits, and, and Lazarus is dead, and he shows up. It's a powerful passage of Scripture in John chapter 11 where he interacts with these people, and he grieves in a really real way. You get to see, like, he hates that these people are suffering. And then the text literally says he shakes with anger at death. He hates death. And he wants nothing more than to undo it completely. He is like rage, anger at what death has done to God's creation. And then in a voice, he says, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And and days dead and stinking like nobody's business, he comes walking out of the grave. Then the text tells us this. From that moment on, the religious leaders gathered together, together to decide how to kill Jesus. One preacher said it this way, by calling Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus put himself in it. You see, these miracles, they always made the person performing the miracle vulnerable. Every time. Peter and John, they knew the risk. They're not just giving to give. They're not just giving to do something that's good for somebody. They are giving knowing that it's going to cost them. They're human. So you imagine John saying, Peter, do you know if you do this? Do you know if you heal him right now? Do you know what's going to happen? And everybody's going to, all the attention's going to be brought to us and we're going to have to face that. And I said, hey, it's, it's better that we do this because we're going to have an opportunity to show how incredible our God is. Now, how often do we move forward? Genuinely, how often do you take a step forward with what God's calling you to do when you know it's going to cost you something? Let me reverse that. How often do you hold back when you know for sure if you do what you feel God's calling you to do, it's going to cost you something? It's going to make your bank account stretch a little bit. It's going to make your comfort zone have to dissipate. It's going to make you have to talk to other uh, creatures that breathe air. And that's just de- detrimental. Like, I don't want to do that. And, and God's calling us to take these steps and we hold back because we know it's going to cost us something. Look, healing for the world will come as life and power and resources and opportunities come out of us. 
And they come out of us. Remember when uh, Jesus' garment was touched by the woman who had been suffering for many years, and he said, hey, there, there's power that's gone out from me, and it provided healing and testimony to his greatness. When our resources and our opportunities come out of us toward other people, it can be Christians and non-Christians. When we are sacrificially giving for the benefit of others to the glory of God, God moves in powerful ways. One person said it this way, the healing of the world comes through the sacrificial death of the church. Healing for the world comes through the sacrificial death of the church. We are here to serve, not to be served. And to exhaust ourselves, meeting the needs of other people, but pointing to the deeper spiritual need that they have. So maybe there's somebody in your life that needs to be forgiven, and it's going to be so hard to offer that forgiveness, but God wants to do that to bring life to other people through that very act of offering that forgiveness. Maybe for some of you, it's stretching the bank account and giving sacrificially. Maybe for some of you, and we don't talk about this enough, God might be actually pricking your heart to sell everything you have and go on the mission field. He might be calling you to go. He might be calling you to be a missionary right here, which he's calling every single one of us to be to be disciple makers right here in our backyard, to go talk to our neighbor, to have people over for dinner, to stretch ourselves in a way that says, this is going to cost me and it's going to be difficult, but it's for the benefit of this person and to the glory of God. It happens in all different ways in our lives. Back in uh, my freshman year of college, I was leaving school uh, to go home on break and my roommate and I were driving from Knoxville, Tennessee down to South Florida. It was about a 17 and a half hour drive. And so we're, we're, we're driving and I was uh, not going slow. And so we get to Georgia, which is like really big. <laughs> and uh, I had something else to say. I'm not going to say it. But we were driving uh, in Georgia, and it just kind of seemed like it was going on forever. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden lights come on behind me, and this, this police officer is going to pull me over. So he pulls me over, and uh, it, I was going fast enough, I guess, and I was in his county. He made that clear uh, when we talked. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was driving fast enough where he didn't get out of his car. He just said, hey, driver of the vehicle, put your hands on the outside of the vehicle, open the door, interlock your hands, and walk toward me. And I'm 18, okay? So I walk toward him, and uh, he gets me, kind of puts me on the hood of the car, handcuffs me, no kidding, and begins to yell in my face. This is, I won't tell you the county. It's uh, Houston County, Georgia, all right? Uh, and he said, this is Houston County, Georgia. You don't speed in my county. And I'm like, I, I'm so sorry. Like, please. And he ends up uncuffing me, tells me to go get my car, gives me the biggest ticket ever. Like, like unbelievable. Like, $500 ticket. I was just like, what in the world? I don't have that kind of money. I don't, I don't have anywhere to go for this. And so I get back to my uh, hometown after uh, changing my pants, and I get home, <laughs> and uh, I had this family that had taken me in. They're like, they're like spiritual parents to me. Um, and, and they mean a lot to me. And I lived with them my senior year of high school. They've supported me. They, they've come in when my kids were born. They were at my wedding. Like they just, they're just like a mom and a dad to me. And so they had seen some things in my life. And so they, they said, hey, we got we to gotta talk. We're going to pay the ticket, and you're going to pay us back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pay you back. They go, oh, no, not with money. You're going to grow up. I was like, what? <laughs> and they said, hey, and they had tears. I mean, they're crying. I said, hey, we know this might cost us the relationship here. We got to say some really hard things. The pattern of your behavior, like you just, it's time to grow up. It's time to make a decision. All right? And we're doing this because we love you. We've been praying about this conversation. We've been praying for you. We're going to keep praying for you. You got to grow up. It was a turning point for me. Because they said, hey, this is, this is what God's doing. He's calling us to do this. It's uncomfortable. We're risking a relationship. We got to do this for, for that benefit. 
See, Peter had spent so much time with Jesus, and he'd watched how Jesus had put the needs of people right on the front burner. Like, it's so important. And he restored dignity. And he watched how he met practical needs, and he always pointed to the deeper spiritual need that that person had. And he, and he paid attention to that. And all of that time and exposure to Jesus had rubbed off on Peter. And so now, like a good apprentice and a student, he's just living it out. My question that I've got is this, like, what about us? See, Peter and John, they just said, this is what I've got. I've got this to offer. I'm going to offer it. And it's going to cost me something. I get that. But I, I have to do this for God's glory. What about for us? Have we spent enough time with Jesus where his very actions and the way he did things and the way he conducted himself has rubbed off on us? Have we spent enough time with Jesus, spending time with him and, and having this tight relationship with him where we see the needs of other people, we restore the dignity of people, we meet practical needs, and we always point to the deeper spiritual need and give God the glory? I can't answer that for you. But I do know this. Every one of us is going to be given an opportunity. And the question is, will you give what you have for the advancement of God's kingdom and his glory? Let's pray. Father, thank you.